I just realized that I had not put my boob away from nursing earlier. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I was going to say something. Hi, I'm Liz. I'm Mickey. They're queer. She's not. Welcome to What the Q. On this podcast, we're exploring queer culture together. Why? Because of you, Mickey. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. From outer space. <laughs> well, a little Gloria Gaynor. This is a queer podcast, not a gay podcast. Right. So, oh, sorry. I take that back. <laughs> Actually, we can get as gay as we want. I mean, just par for the chorus. So we're here today to talk about my dear friend, Erica, who I lovingly refer to as E, but her name is Erica. <laughs> her pronouns are she, her, hers. But I call her they, them, whenever the hell I want to. Apparently, I'm the most uninformed queer on the planet Earth. But that's what we're here about today. It's our Midway Mark episode. This will be episode number five. I can't believe we made it. Halfway Mark. And Liz, you want to tell everybody what we have planned for them after episode five? Uh, Yeah, after this episode, we currently have three interviews booked. Two interviews in the works. Uh, Mickey's working their magic to book the final two. That is going to take a hot minute since the interviews we've released so far were recorded earlier in the year. So we're at a point where we're going to record the next five. What we're learning is that it takes Mickey about 20 hours per episode. Uh, it's part-time job. 20. 20 hours per episode. Did we decide that? Yeah, yeah, we did the math. It's 20 hours to edit the episodes. That doesn't include our intro-outro recordings or the recording of the interview. So we need to record those three interviews, book the other two, record the other two, and then Mickey then edits the interview itself. I listen to it so that I can speak to it. And then we record our intro and outro. So Mickey edits the interview, then edits our intro and outro, and then y'all get to hear it. But that's 20 plus hours with the interview. Yeah, I'd say it's 20 hours with my admin and my editing. So we're at the halfway mark. And we, so currently we don't have any interviews recorded, but we have three on the books and two more uh, we're trying to book. So that's where we're at. And we're like, I mean, to be honest, I'm like over the moon about that. When I found out how long it took you to end an, an episode, I'm like, it's your call. We can quit now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was a little shocked myself, uh-huh. but like, because it's a labor of love, I've never really took the time to like, if I was doing this project for somebody else and getting paid, I would definitely be keeping track of my hours. Even if I wasn't getting paid by the hour, it's, it's sometimes it's good for them to know. It's good for me to know how long things take. But with this, I was like, how long does it take? And yeah, apparently it takes 20 hours. And hopefully it pays off. Hopefully it comes across to you as some a labor that is worthwhile. One lesson for me is I need to break it up. I do it like I'm cramming for an exam. What I need to do is I need to do it in small doses and break it up into like three days, you know. I said to Liz earlier, I'm like, if it's three hours at a time, it's a hobby. If it's nine hours at a time, it's insanity. It's like a chore. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. And 
it's not news to me that I choose insanity a lot of the time. So <laughs> I think what we are coming to is the fact that we are pretty much up to speed and you will be hearing interviews broadcast much closer to when they were recorded. Oh, that's true too. But um, a reminder to our listeners, this has really been like a workshopping project as much as it's been like a podcast production. We just hope to make it better and better and becomes more and more professional. So this episode is a good example of a learning curve because... (laughs) (laughs) Can I have a minute to just... (laughs) I know exactly what this is about to say. (laughs) Well, my microphone wasn't recording me. I was talking into my microphone, but my computer was recording me. And you will clearly hear the difference in this episode. Which made it a thrill for Mickey to edit, by the way. Well, what I said to Liz when I was editing is like, it's kind of a good thing that you don't have that much to say in this episode because <laughs> because your mic isn't even on. Um, this was the third person that we sat down with. And for some reason, Liz was a little bit more frazzled on this episode. One thing that happened... <laughs> If I could start with the excuses now, um, <laughs> is that this was quite the episode to record. <laughs> so I didn't know about the my microphone not being set up correctly while we were recording, and you you won't hear this in the episode, but we're recording and E is speaking, and I hear footsteps coming up my stairs and my we all hear footsteps coming up (laughs) and someone going ma'am ma'am it's the fire station it's it's the fire department did you call the fire department well just because i've heard it a bunch of times (laughs) (laughs) so i hear it's the fire department and the first thing that crosses my mind is is that what people say when they come to murder you so um, I didn't know if I should open my door next. I'm on the I'm on my second floor in our office with the door closed. So I do decide to open the door, and it is the fire department. And come to find out, um, they had the wrong house. Anywho, what I, what I'm interested in after listening to it was your husband is clearly downstairs and had answered no, the door. No, that's not what happened. Oh. No, so what happened was... Okay, because I was like, did they not believe him that you didn't call the fire? Like, that you were trapped upstairs like, and they're here because I thought there was a murder, and I thought they were here to murder me. What happened was, of course I'm thinking, why is the fire department here? Where is my husband? When they first arrived to our property, they walked to the back of our home. Tom saw that and went to the backyard to meet them back there to ask them what was going on. By the time they came to the front yard and came inside and walked up the stairs, he hadn't circled back around the house yet. We all met in the foyer of my home at the same time, realized that they were at the wrong address. So that, and that happened. That happened at the very beginning. (laughs) And there was residual nerve damage. I don't think my heart rate went down the entire podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So it was definitely an exceptional recording day. No better person than my friend Erica to be with because her first question after you recovered was, were the firemen cute? They were. Question answered. So what's going on recently? So most recently, Tom and I went on vacation. 
<gasps> That's right. Yeah. We disconnected from the world and we took a week off from work, went off of our schedules, got out of the routine, went off the grid, except for Instagram. We went to Newport, Rhode Island, and we did all the touristy things, and we ate, we drank, we had time to unwind, and it, it was really, it was great. How about you? How was your week? My week was good. Actually, I was quite social. On my calendar, I make any kind of social or meeting another human a purple, and I had three purple events. One of them was kind of work-related. I met with Anthony Hudson that I gushed about in our last episode, Carla Rossi, and we had a really nice happy hour, and he had some work for me for his upcoming production of Clown Down, Failure to Mount. I might be screwing up the name, but Carla Rossi puts up a Ikea bookshelf and fails to mount it, and it falls on top of her, and the whole episode takes place from there with puppets and music and drag queens. So I'll be covering and producing some music for that show. And I'm very excited because like I said in the last episode, I just really love working with Anthony. It's been a very long time and I'm just so happy that they thought about me. I went to dinner at a friend's house who just moved into a tiny house in my neighborhood. And that was adorable and just so nice to catch up. And we talked about the podcast. They gave me some feedback and that was cute. I think I mentioned this the other day, like I have another friend that is just gushing with positive feedback and I'm like, that's great, but I really, I like critical feedback because that's how things get better. So I was thankful for the critical feedback, but in this instance, it's like we already made these decisions for season one. It wasn't a bad suggestion. It was just logistically something we couldn't fit in right now. Not now. And it might, it might be. Yeah, and it might be something that we discuss when we're fashioning up season two and be like, maybe that, maybe we'll do that. But so I really do like the critical feedback. Yeah, speaking of feedback, we have a friend who listens. Tom met them out. He asked if we were going to do a feedback show. He has things, questions and things to say and also wants to meet you and stuff like that. Well, here's the other thing. We tell people to comment, subscribe, and review us. Leave comments, and we all respond to those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you have a question about what somebody says, or um, you have suggestions at all, the best place to do this is on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. It helps us to have people interacting, and yeah, we pretty much have our format down for season one and we're yeah, sticking right, with it. Exactly. This is our story. We're sticking, we're sticking with sticking it. To it. We've got plenty enough to, to do as it is and I don't need to work for 21 hours. So the other thing I did is I met a friend. I just, for me to do social stuff, it's like really like, uh, I'd like to do work related stuff. I mean, even to talk to you. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the only reason why we talk once a week a is because we have a, a work-related yeah. project because we have a podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, it might be like just texting like we always have done. But um, so I met with another friend for a belated birthday lunch and we went to a local park, Kelly Point Park, uh, which is right on the water where the Willamette and the Columbia meet. And uh, we just had a nice day and good food and just talk, 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 talk. Like, it just was really nice to catch up. This is obviously a queer person because everybody that I know in this town is queer. And is also, big surprise, a prospective future guest of the show. I was going to say, do they want to be a guest? (laughs) 
That's one of the two. One of the other two is, and Pepper Pepper, I know that you might not be listening to this because you're so busy, but you come up in every episode. The only rival that you have is Tom. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, actually, in this episode, the guest mentions you because she's a dear friend of yours as well. So, the Pepper Pepper, you come up on every single episode. I don't even tell people who you are. So... You need to come on the podcast and let people know who the hell you are, because I ain't telling. I was gonna—I was just about to announce their Instagram site, but I won't now. No, they got to show up. All right, I won't say. I mean, I—I I said the Pepper Pepper. You know, anyone that knows how to use That's Google all or you need hashtag. To know. That's all you get. The Pepper Pepper is another silent character in our podcast, and I think it's about time that you showed up. Pepper Pepper actually has an invitation pending. We went back and forth with some dates at one point, so. And then, I mean, they're out of town more than they're in town these days. I love spending time with Pepper. The last thing that we did together was a gay wedding in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, and. That wasn't that long ago. June, probably. It was a really good time. I DJed the Pepper Pepper in her sheenness, was the host, and did a performance number. And, yeah, we had a great time. And I let her drive my car all the way back home <laughs> i think pepper just got their license uh, um you notice i with pepper i just run through all the pronouns with him because <laughs> i it just depends on what i feel about them in that sentence and i'm guessing it's okay because i'm talking about pepper pepper the drag queen and i'm talking about pepper my friend and then i'm talking about pepper my baby sister it's all these different people um, wrapped up into one person. And you, I can't wait for you all to meet them. I'm really excited for you to meet today's guest, my good friend, Erica, who has recently moved away. And after spending nine hours of editing their interview, her interview, I keep getting her pronouns wrong too. <laughs> Um, I'm just really missing her hard and it's, uh, it was so good to hear her voice, but on top of that, it was hard to hear her voice because she left us for good reasons. We recorded my friend Erica, who I lovingly refer to as E on April 13th, which we all know was a long time ago. About five months ago. Yep. About five months ago. So going back and listening to the interview all over again, I was like, whoa, she has a beautiful voice. She is very articulate and she brings the academic to this topic because she really is well thought out about how she feels about everything. And I'm kind of excited for people to hear a lot about gender and sexuality and queerness. There's a couple other things that come up I can't even remember right now, but we're about to hit play on this interview. Anything you want to say as we're going into ease conversation? Thank you, Erica, for being on our podcast. Here's Erica. We would like to welcome E to What the Q. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Well, why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself? My name is Erica and I am in my early 40s and just recently became a mama after many many years of desire for that like since i was five 
and I am from the East Coast. I'm born and raised in Pennsylvania and relocated to Oregon at 30. So I've been here for 13 years. I have been a photographer, a writer, a drag artist and performance artist, foodie with knife skills, and a light watcher. I am really, really committed to beauty. And queer is the first term that I could really sink my teeth into as, as an identifier when it came into broader use. I forgot to mention dancer, I think. I am a dancer. Yeah. So what does the queer identity mean to you? Queerness for me, hmm, there's so much. I've been thinking recently about the pervasive sense in my life of being an outsider to dominant culture. And, you know, the implications of that as a, a cis white woman are interesting to consider now that we're like really starting to dive into all kinds of intersectional understanding of identities. Before I had an awareness of my sexuality that was, you know, more whole rather than like a reflection of cultural expectations, I didn't have any language around that, but I had this really strong, insistent sense of otherness. That is what queer identity feels like to me is like not only the identifying with your own otherness, but then a sense of being embraced by it. You're not alone just because you're othered. There's a lot of ways to belong and a lot of ways to meet that very basic and valid and, and strong human need for belonging, for a sense of seeing our experiences reflected to us and for being held and cared about in a community of people who don't necessarily share those experiences. And I think queers have to come together and do that for each other because often our families of origin and our society don't know how to do that for us, even though they are here to extract and here to let us entertain them and here to, you know, really enjoy what we bring to their lives. That sounds more strident than I mean it to, because I definitely come, you know, again, from this, all of this privilege, but it is written hand in hand with this sense of like, wow, I just do not belong mm -hmm. to these people. These people being my straight, mostly white, European, Christian family of origin. Those are some of their data points. Mm-hmm. You know, just like one of my data points, well, some of my data points are like, I'm a white middle-aged mom. Right. <laughs> it's not all of me, right? So, yeah, that's the queerness is, is this, this sense of otherness. And then the other piece of that is, you know, something that our friend Pepper talks about a lot is that is the magic that we have to make out of that otherness and the beauty that that perspective can bring into the world, to, can bring into being. And the commitment to show up for people who are not our family of origin, who to, to create families and to hold one another in community because we have to build so much of it from scratch. Mm -hmm. Not all of us. I mean, my family of origin, my mom is still, I'm really close with her. My dad passed when I was 20, but he loved me for who I was. You know, I was really lucky. Again, so much privilege. Did not get disowned or thrown out of the house or, you know, face so many of the challenges that are just a, a really consistent story for friends mm -hmm. and loved ones of mine. But it doesn't change the fact that I did not feel like, like I belonged. Do you think a lot of that, most of your queerness world around gender? A lot of it around gender and a lot of it around my sexuality when I started to understand right, it. Right, right. When I discovered Boy George and I was probably nine, 
I was like, she's the most beautiful lady I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't know at nine if I was like, do I want to fuck this person? Do I want to be this person? Do I want to like be this person's best friend? Like I just, I was so confused. I didn't have an awareness yet to be like, why do I am so attracted to this person? And also it didn't matter that his name is Boy George. I was like, she's the greatest. So I was like, that's not normal. That's not average, you know? Like there's not people being like, you know, who's she? You know, mm-hmm. now they are. Having the seed of this desire for this glamorous, sexy, strange, surreal character that was presented in pop culture and not knowing what their gender was. And I still don't know because I don't know Boy George, but not knowing what their gender was, making an assessment, recognizing all the contradictions in that assessment of like who they might be and just being like, you know, loins aflame kind of you know, as, an, as much as you can be as a nine-year-old. I mean, I was a kind of early sensualist. So I think I had a lot of awareness around like sensual desire without understanding sex. And then I was boy crazy and I also really started to recognize probably in puberty that I really, really liked girls too. And didn't have any good words for that. Didn't have any good words for my own sense of my my gender identity either because I was, I started being misgendered at age eight. I was female assigned at birth. I have always had my own sense of femaleness, whatever that means, but had that part of myself just be erased by the dominant culture by being misgendered from like age eight. It's just really a mind fuck when you're eight years old in the supermarket and some white mom is telling their little boy about the the boy behind them in line and you're like, I'm not, who the fuck are you talking about? I'm not a boy. I didn't tell you that. You don't know me. So yeah, just dealing, dealing with my gender dysphoria from, from a perspective of never being seen and never being asked either. And then, you know, finding words like fluid and gender queer, which, you know, started to really fit the bill and recognizing like this, this part of me that feels like the man who fell to earth. And this part of me that feels gatekept from femininity because I'm not seen as that. I'm not seen as a valid representation of the feminine. And then starting to perform drag and preferring to perform drag as a queen, but always getting asked to do king stuff because I'm female assigned to birth. And I'm like, the drag kings are boring to me. Uh, I get in trouble for that one, but I like but, really. But you was, do have a good Frank. Is it Frank? Frank is my drag king. Yeah, not, he not is bad. a lot of trouble. He gets me slapped in the face. No joke. He's trouble. He's also a flaming pansexual kind of a sexist bastard. He's a problematic character, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he's a lot of fun. He's very handsome. I would totally, totally do him. That's really what it comes down to is like, is your sexuality narcissexualism? (laughs) (laughs) I hear you describe yourself as cisgendered white woman. Do you consider yourself non-binary? Do you prefer they, them pronouns? I, I think that because of my long relationship with being misgendered as he, that it puts my heckles up to not be given a chance to be she. Mm. But I'm also, and especially as I've made a new human and am navigating language in the world of other people with her and using they pronouns a lot and talking about friends and folks, I have no problems with using they for myself. I definitely have moments in my day on the regular, if not periods in my life, where my sense of myself as a woman, I'm going to put that in quotes, is not particularly important. 
But because I'm so immersed in this like female socialized activity of being a birth parent, laying claim to non-binary is a, definitely a possibility, but it doesn't feel like really present to what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that option of becoming. The reality is that I experience my gender as I do my sexuality as being highly fluid, as being this intimate experience that I get to find language to share about with other people and that it's probably going to change throughout my life. That's my lived reality. I think that's what we're finding too. Gender is probably one of the most individual identity parts of our, our character, our person. As I guess sexuality, they're both very fluid things, just like you're saying. It's a new territory, not because people of ambiguous gender or people of you know non-dominant sexualities or people of fluid experiences have not existed for time immemorial, like they have. This is not like a new phenomenon, right? We know that. We've done mm-hmm. our history work. We understand that. Queer new ancestors. stories are yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and new stories are surfacing as people reconnect to oral tradition, to sharing letters of private experience, or you know, documentation of private experience with a broader audience through the arts, through library projects, through storytelling, archiving And that's all really exciting. People are feeling like, oh, my God, it's this new thing. It's this onslaught and I can't keep up and I don't understand. And it's not new. It's like language is a fluid thing, too. The easiest summary of it is that we continue to find language and to utilize it. And we're utilizing it on a much broader public scale than ever before in history to describe intimate personal experience, lived experience, sensory experience, our sense of our place in the world and in our families and in our communities, in our bodies, that is hella queer. Mm -hmm. It's queer whether I wanted to own it or not. I mean, when I used to be married to my husband before my wife, I was very queer and out before I married my husband. And we got fag bashed on the regular because people recognized us as having some intimate connection and they couldn't figure out my gender and they couldn't figure out our relationship. Sometimes they thought we were siblings. (laughs) It's a very curious thing. Sometimes they thought that we were lovers when we were... Like gay lovers. Like gay lovers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, when we first moved from Philadelphia to Portland, it kept happening. We were walking down the street in Selwood and, you know, I never felt like my life was in danger. I've been very lucky to never have been assaulted physically, but we just would get yelled at and we're walking down the street one night and I was had my bike in my hand and he's walking next to me and this pickup truck slows down and they're like, fags! And because I'm a queen, the first thing I thought to say is, that's my boyfriend! Because <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't matter that it's my husband and I have my period and like my tits hurt and I'm fucking, you know, like none of that matters. I was just like, this is my, my best response. So it doesn't matter like what I do. I am going to have a queer experience because I get read that way. And I also enjoy that. I like to play with that. A lot of my previous performance work was really, and especially as a queen, before I knew what Victor Victoria was, I was like, double cross, yes. Like, people all the time, they would be like, wait, we're, you know, queens would say, we have a betting pool going about, like, what's going on down there. And I was like, isn't it more exciting not to know? Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, what does it matter? <laughs> Unless we're lovers, or you're my proctologist. When is it like, ever anybody's <laughs> business to know what's going on down there? And that's the new learning. As we find this language to describe the intimate experience, we're also finding language to be like, it's none of your fucking business, mm-hmm. right? And it also doesn't matter 
It doesn't, you don't need this to catalog and dismiss me, to have a real human relationship with me. We can have that relationship and talk about it, but you can also defer to not knowing and be okay with that and still just connect with me as a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to learn about and teach my daughter and who, you know, may at some point become my son or some other relation to, you know, like name of relationship to me, my child whoever they may be when they grow up and decide. We drove people crazy when, when we were pregnant and they were like, are you having a boy or a girl? And I was like, I don't know. I'm having a human, mm-hmm. you know? I was like, what does that even mean? It sounds like you're poised to wait for your child to show you who they are. When I was pregnant, and you probably did know this, there were not a lot of people who did know this, but you probably did know this. I wanted a daughter. I wanted a daughter so bad that I did not want to talk about it. And I knew that I had a daughter. And I also had to really talk myself through the fact that if I had a child who was born assigned male at birth, that I would probably still have a daughter. (laughs) You know, the reality is that I respect my child enough to hold her and hopefully be human enough to walk through whatever she goes through in life, whatever pronouns she uses whatever sexuality she adopts please let her not be like a log cabin republican but i want to meet her as a person and i wanted to meet her as a person that need that desire for a daughter that's my shit that's not on her and so i was so excited to have a human being I wasn't actually holding out for a unicorn. She's a unicorn in training. Yeah, because she could totally take that on. And I would really need to show up and support her. I remember, just as part of my experience, hearing the story of when my mother gave birth to me and my nana saying to her, you finally have your son. I always felt so confused by that, that that was a good thing growing up because I was like, I'm only going to let her down because I don't... 100% identify with that, but my mother, it was such her pride. And I was held on a pedestal because of that. It was assumed that I had abilities that my sisters didn't have, older and younger. And it hurt me just as much as it hurt them. Right, because the expectations on you and then the lack of expectations for them. And the lack of support. Queerness gets really interesting for me because it sort of stands up as a fuck you to all these socialized expectations to all this socialized teaching that says that children that are assigned boys at birth, if they don't do something the first time, they're taught. It's modeled for them that they just need to practice more. Sometimes they're pushed also. Like, there's a lot that goes along with that. But they're, they're taught, oh, you just need to practice more. Girls are socialized to believe that if they don't do it the first time, you don't have innate talent. What a load of horse shit, Right. I have to hold a lot of compassion and gratitude for the fact that like we are having these conversations right now and also for the people who are like, oh, I'm not ready to have this conversation because so many of our beliefs and our social structures are just passed along to us without any real reflection on what is this doing to people? What is What are the impacts? What does this really mean? Do I really believe that? Like, how does that feel in my body? What does that mean for someone who's having a very different experience than mine? We're seeing this sort of like getting to this pinnacle of like all the gross stuff that this social set has gifted us, you know, Uh with her administration, with white male fragility, with white female fragility too. Like, let's not forget our fragile white ladies. 
Uh, I am a white, white lady. White lady tears. Yeah, white lady tears. It's poison. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> so we're seeing that writ large and we're still trying to struggle through like, how do we navigate this? And how do we, for me, I just keep coming back. Like, how do we care to each other? Mm. How do we make space for human potential to just like unfurl? We have so much. Every single human on this planet, born and unborn, has something incredible to offer. And we put challenge after hurdle after obstacle in front of so many people. And it could be so much easier. Yeah. It's like a, a weird bureaucracy. <laughs> it's like this weird, massive global bureaucracy to like keep people in their line. I'm sorry, you'll just have to queue a little bit longer to reach your potential. We're seeing like all of the fruits of this whole system that hopefully comes crashing down in our lifetimes. And then we're seeing the new seeds and then the small flowers, the small blossoms and blades of like this growth of this new language, of these identities that are coming to the surface of people saying, hey, you know what, this doesn't fucking work for me. And I actually have a lot to say. And it's valid. And, you know, all of those, I also need to say that all of that growth and all of that um, new, this new tiny tender garden, you know, is on the blood, sweat and tears of millions that have gone before us. And have been erased from the history books. Right. And so we, we get to plow that fertile ground because they died for it. We really need to like get connected to, you know, how much work and in such a long time and then how much work is happening in such a short span of time. Mm. Unimaginable because it's technology changes and it's cultural changes and it's global, you know, in this compressed time period. If you can be in the vaguely optimistic camp, which I try to stay in, it's so exciting because it's like, we're on the verge of unlocking human potential, not just being a scourge of the earth, you know, <laughs> the virus that killed it all. <laughs> like, and it's, there's so much beauty. There's so much beauty in the world at large, but it, like queerness has like such a very raw and visceral and intense beauty for me. I want to see it. I want to see it reflected. I want the variety. Give me the diversity. Give me the like vast stores of really wildly divergent perspective and experience and then let's hold each other like let's let each other be well let's help each other thrive i don't think that it's clear to normative culture what what queerness has to offer what potential lies in normative culture the queers express this language create this language language that has been building since the dawn of time which has created humanity as we know it as you're saying it's going further and faster and quicker and there's there's something for all of us in it. I think about that, what queerness has to offer and all of this new language, all of this variety of expression has to offer dominant or normative culture is freedom. Freedom from expectations that do not match what you want to bring. Freedom from harm. Freedom from ridiculous confines to your being. I think about all of the straight males who grew up with the toxic machismo kind of thing, what if they were allowed to wear whatever the hell they wanted? What if little girls who were of whatever stripe, tomboys, you know, high femme princesses, whatever, like what if people were just allowed to dress in whatever clothing they felt great in? Like how much heartache would we save and how much more interesting our world would be? There's so much work to get there. And I think that when, you know, people get confronted with this and they feel like if you take away my role 
that I understand, if you're telling me that I can be emotionally present and still be masculine, that I can hug my friend on the street and not have to say no homo or whatever the fuck that is, like that I can just be who I am and I can share affection with the people that I care about and that I can dress in ways that don't feel confining or that express some part of myself when I don't feel like a creative person. It just, it gets really exciting. Mm -hmm. It gets so big so fast. It makes me think of fashion as we know it is not really expressing yourself, but somebody else's interpretation of what yourself should be. And we want to step out of that and say, you put on your clothes and you show us how you see it. Yeah. yeah. Or if it's not clothing, like what, you know, whatever it is, I have a really strong connection to dance. And for several years now, friends and I have talked about the dualism of like, I'm a dancer and you get to be the audience. And the idea that like, well, I, oh, I can't dance. And it's like, do you have a body? Do you hear sounds as distinct? Can you feel vibrations? You know, do you have music in your head? Like it does like great you're a dancer can you move in space and time you're a dancer Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there's not and 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 to give yourself the freedom and the permission and accept the invitation to step into that and just take joy in moving your body in space and time what else does that open up for you you don't have to be the world's prima ballerina to take joy in that and it's also totally valid if you really want to sit and watch other people dance because you know we need an audience too but it doesn't mean that there's that division there's no what is it the fourth wall in theater like stepping through that wall like there is no division that you get to be over here and you're only this thing and i'm going to be over here and i'm all of this thing that's not real for me that's a construct that i would love to see the end of because i want people to participate and so maybe you're not into fashion what you wear you don't give a shit about it you don't feel confined by it but you also don't feel freed by it like great what else is there that you could tap into that sense how else can you show up let the construct fall apart this is where social science gets really interesting there's this dating company in new york i wish this was everywhere because it sounds so much more appealing than tinder to me they send you a t-shirt and you wear the t-shirt for three days and you can't wear any cologne or any deodorant And then you send them the t-shirt back and they cut it up into like 15 pieces and they send it to people. So then you smell the t-shirt and if you are attracted to the person, they set up a a meeting. On lines of like people's understood sexual preferences, you know, on on all of these measures, it's it totally fits. People don't accidentally choose gay if they don't identify that way. Like they're choosing based on this like, oh, that smells like somewhere I want to be. Right. And. So it just frees up all that other nonsense of like, let me craft this weird profile to like lure someone into the net of potentially having a really vague exchange and possibly having sex, but not, have you know, like whatever. It's just like, do I want to stick my face at that? You know, it's so funny because my biggest concern when using apps and what have you is they're going to show up and I'm not going to enjoy their smell. It's yeah, weird it's that that's one of the number one things. They come and they're like, oh, everything has mm-hmm. changed. The picture doesn't matter. The profile doesn't matter. The sense of smell is also, you know, one of our most primal. It's how we decided what was poisonous, what was good to eat, you know, where like when there was fire or danger or, you know, whatever. How do we identify our family? Like 
it, we know our spell. What's, what is, you know, safe? What, what, where is safety? And also where is like, mm, you know, mm-hmm. where's the sexy? How do we procreate and like, you know, or how do we just do this for fun? Because that's so much more of what's happening. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Your explanation of queerness. I mean, that alone is exactly why we're doing this because every guest identifies it differently just to try to get into a society that lets people be, move how they want, dress how they want, identify as how they want. You know, this is the future that we see or hope for for everyone. When you talk about not knowing the right words when you were eight, nine, ten years old, mm-hmm. to where we are now, to having such a large vocabulary almost that we sometimes aren't even up to date to where this can then turn so that an eight-year-old does know how to identify themselves at an earlier age and isn't put in the construct of our, what you would call mm-hmm. our dominant culture. Everything you said basically fit into everything I want our listeners to hear. You're getting the smorgasbord approach. Oh yeah, no, it's like perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, touching upon dance and it's for myself, I come from a classical ballerina background. And with that background, it's that or it's nothing. So I've struggled with how to live in movement outside of those constraints because it's so disciplined and so specific. I mean, I found my way, but that's a a tough mindset to come out of. I also want to touch upon the first time I met you. And I don't know if you remember meeting me. I came to your house on like the food train after you had your baby. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Tortellini salad. Tortellini salad. On the way over, Mickey was explaining to me pronouns specifically related to meeting you because Mickey told me that you used they, them. We just found out not necessarily though, right? Right. But at the time, yeah. for having heard that people use they, them for the first time in my life in that car ride, I honestly didn't know what to expect. When I walked into your home, I saw a very feminine person in you, which is kind of funny to everything you just said because you saw me in my full mama like yes oh 100 oh, plus you were probably straight up breastfeeding i mean that's a continuing thing but I, you know non-binary and other presenting people breastfeed and they are birth parents and they are like we're seeing that more and more i identify as mama and not every birth parent does having the conversation with mickey and meeting you made me feel so much more at ease about pronouns altogether that just made it like less scary you were the first face to me behind the they them pronouns and i'm like oh my god this is so fine when i think about pronouns you're you always be like tied to that memory for me i like in a very positive way this is so delightful for me and so hilarious at the same time this is like my universal trickster joyful buddha laugh moment because i didn't know that mickey told you any of that and Mickey and I didn't have never talked about that. I'm just finding this out. And it's and it's so funny to me. And I, I will share a sort of corollary story about they them for me. I have a group of friends in Radical Fairy community. And I had a period of years with two friends in particular who also knew each other, who every time that, that we would get together, almost always at queer performance, they would ask me my pronouns. And I would tell them. And then they would continue to they them me. Okay. After I said she, her, <laughs> mister. I, I, I'm sh- like my my dominant is she her mister they just continued to they them me and I was just like oh fuck it I don't I give up you know like it doesn't even matter anyway because it doesn't matter like all this time people thought I'm he him it doesn't change your lived experience it is dysphoria making it was dysphoria making to me to be sirred and he himmed 
all growing up and and mm-hmm. now it still continues to I mean I was nursing my baby mm-hmm. and I got served <laughs> like it just there's clearly something about me it's probably that I'm like almost six foot and I walk with purpose and I usually have part of my head shaved so you know and I don't wear makeup unless I'm like you know getting paid uh because i'm really lazy <laughs> so, so let's be real there's so many um, connections between the both of us <laughs> I know, I know. and so do, you know this just this ongoing thing my clown says take a step back it doesn't fucking matter and the wise drag ancestors keep reminding me that what other people think about me is none of my business and it doesn't matter. But it's hard because it's like that tender line of wanting to be seen and known, right? We all want to be seen and known. We want to feel belonging. And we really, especially as as people who have not until very recently and maybe not still having reflections of ourselves coming back from the larger culture, having access to those reflections, fine line is this sort of erasure, this dysphoria making of not being seen and known. And even of being, you know, in that particular instance with friend, with friendly folks being asked and then having that erased, I, I don't think there was any malintent, you no. know, just like I think that people now new to the conversation, learning, practicing, it's not malintent, mm-hmm. but there is an onus. There's an onus to like recognize if you've been told to recognize the impacts of not taking that on. Like, I really need to recognize the impacts of meeting people and not committing to remembering their names. <laughs> you know, because I'm really, like, sometimes I'm really bad. Like, I had a friend in college who was my very close friend's girlfriend for several years. It took me two and a half years. I am now really not certain of her name. <laughs> I, I did erase her from memory for other reasons, but that had impacts. You know, and so like I recognize like, you know, I have friends who have been really clear about pronouns and have been consistent for years or they change and they tell their nearest and dearest and they're like, you know, this is what I really want from you and have that be like, oh, it's not it's not that important. And it's like, no, it is. And you know what? It's 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 my job to try to fucking remember your name. Mm -hmm. It's my job. It's not your like or I can own that I'm really bad at it and I can ask each time. Like my friends did. It's the most proper thing to do is be like, right, I just forgot. Ask, just ask. And that I think that also is like part of this consent building that we're like moving around, like these consensual exchanges where mm-hmm. we're learning the language for this stuff. And then we're learning how to participate in our own learning. You don't put the onus of learning on the people most impacted by your ignorance. <laughs> you know, recently I've come out to family and friends, non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. I've they, them you all... Actually, I even corrected myself when I've said she or so. <laughs> I'm really, I am really off base. But a mutual friend of ours made it apparent through social media that they're not preferred pronouns. They're your pronouns. No, they're not. It's yeah, not your sorry. preferred pronouns. It's your Thank pronouns. You. Thank you so much because that's old language and that, that was pointed out to me as well. And I've tried to like scrub that one because it isn't a preference. I prefer not to eat lima beans. Yeah. It is your pronoun when you say it is, and it is your, just like it's your consent when you say it is. And then the same friend also pointed out that you can't just default to they, them, if that's not that person's pronouns. No. Which I've always felt was a safety net. I felt like you can they, them, because that's just being polite in some way of not assuming. I think it is a safe bet. If you don't know, or, you know, if it may be in flux, 
there's a lot of reasons that it could be okay, and there's some reasons that it might not be. But the the best thing to do is to say to that person directly, what are your pronouns? Yeah. And I don't think anybody ever is off-put by hearing that. I literally care zero about the fact that you, they, them, me. You, you've seen me in so many iterations of self. It doesn't, I, yeah, zero offense taken. But I also, like... I have never questioned the quality of our relationship, the underlying love that's there. I trust you. So we have a very different mm-hmm. basis of relating. And I and I have my trickster, so I find it funny. And, you know, if it was someone else, like these friends in Rad Fake Community that where that was just the, you know, it just it felt like a little bit of like, oh, like a disappointment. It wasn't like an offense, but it was just like, oh. Well, you know you're not being seen. Yeah. Or that they just don't actually care. Yeah. So I just really like enjoyed listening to you take the time to share with us your personal views on everything. I think every one of these conversations helps us get to the place where we no longer assume these things about each other. And one Mm -hmm. thing that stuck out while you were talking was, you know, when you were little in the grocery line and someone would refer to you as a boy without asking. And now we're having a full conversation between the three of us about just ask. How beautiful would it be to have someone these days in that same situation and the parent turn around and ask the child, what are your pronouns? Yeah, that, oh, that would have been such a, I mean, like years of heartache averted. Liz, I have a question for you. When you were saying that I was giving you the they, them discussion about E on the way to her house, were you afraid of some militants or some type of challenge or that you'd feel out of place or what was it that you were feeling that you might encounter? It was just the unknown. I had Mm. never put a face with they, them. So I didn't know what that face looked like. And so E, you're that face, by the way, forever. The moment I walked into your home and met you, I was like, what the heck was I worried about? They are a person, but now I know she's a person, but they, they are also a person. <laughs> yes. It would just melted away immediately. But the anticipation of the meeting for the first time. Yeah, I had some anxiety over that. Yeah. But I appreciate you naming that because I think that that because a pronoun is a data point. Right. It's not a whole person. It's not a human being. It's it's a word. Right. And it's a very important word. It's an identifier that is like incredibly intimate, can be really, really hard fought, hard won, but it's a data point. And it, they carry so much weight in the vacuum of singularity, right? Yeah. Republican, you know, like <laughs> that's a data gun point. owner, <laughs> you know, like it's scary, but you know what? I know gun owners and Republicans who are whole, amazing, non-binary, transgender, queer, blah, 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 blah. Like you can name any other number of, you know, data points that start to point to a picture of a human being. Mm -hmm. But it, but when you're just like faced with this singularity, it can be really scary because there's so much shit attached to that. That has nothing to do with the human being that's potentially standing on the other side of a door. Yes. It was a data point that I had nothing to draw from zero and and I didn't want to screw it up. <laughs> so it was really a like, oh, oh shit, like it's into the void. Sorry, I'm just, I just realized that I had not put my boob away from uh. nursing earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm right. Excuse me. Yeah, I was going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> So 
So once again, I'm just so excited to have had her on the show, especially before she left Portland. I just feel like there was a lot of meat on that bone. Yeah, I mean, it was nice because she was in your home to record. So you were able to spend some time together before she left. I mean, you may have seen her, you know, before she left again, but it was nice to have had her over and to have gotten this on the podcast. A few things that came up in this episode, gender dysphoria, not being seen or asked, being fluid, being genderqueer, not being seen as feminine. Those are all unique situations to her story, but also some overlapping things about language, not having the language when she was younger. And obviously the most common theme is to identify as queer. I thought that bringing up pronouns was really interesting to hear back because like, again, this was five months ago and you had come out as non-binary using they, them pronouns. I thought it was interesting to hear this conversation again because at the time it was closer to the time and now we're a little further out. And one thing that she said really stood out to me this time because I feel like I can see it from the other side now. I'm going to quote her and then I'll, I'll try to break it down. If you've been told, then it's important to recognize the impact of not taking that on. So... I thought back to mine and your conversation, Mickey, when you asked me to do better. I told you I needed you to excel. To excel. I think what I took from that was what impact was I having on you by Mm -hmm. not excelling? And when I heard her say this in this episode, I heard it five months ago, but listening to it again today... So, you listened five months ago. You heard it. Just yes, I listened five months ago. I heard it today, one hundred percent. You know, we also talked about practice in this episode. To be fair, but that impact of not taking that on, that impact to you, if I were to not take it on, and. I just I just like to really boil it down to that. I think I have something to bounce off of what you just said mm-hmm. and what E said. First of all, what I got out of that same thing was that for me, coming out as non-binary, it's more important to me how the people close to me do than people I don't know. Yeah. I can't really do anything about strangers that are meeting me once for the first time or just fleetingly throughout my life. But the people that are close to me are going to have the strongest impact. So it does have a bigger impact on me if you know me. And I think we've been doing splendidly communicating this between each other. And you've been really great about it. And it has taken time. It has taken practice. And I think everything is unfolding nicely. The other thing that I got out of E's conversation at this part is... For anybody who is informed about somebody's pronouns, putting the burden on the person that's affected by it is just not okay. I have a friend who I'm quite forgiving of that they don't get my pronouns right because they're just so frazzled around it and I just can't deal with it anymore. But they constantly tell me you need to remind me and I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, I don't. Mm -hmm. I already told you. And probably more than once. I'll say it after the fact, like you introduced me that person as he and that's kind of destructive to what I'm trying to get across by having come out to you. And they're like, oh, you need to remind me every time. But they actually don't get it at all. But in short, there is someone in my life that just absolutely cannot get it right. They get completely frazzled and they try to put it on me to remind them every time. And I'm like, no. I'm not going to do that. You need to just get it right or you're not getting it right. And 
So in that situation, because this isn't a Liz and Mickey relationship, I've decided to choose my battles and that's just not worth the battle. And I think in this example, um, what she's not realizing is the impact she's having by not taking it on. Right. Well, to your point and to my Mm -hmm. point, it's not my responsibility. Right. (laughs) I think you mentioned that he brought up being misgendered as a child. Right. And we talked about this before the podcast and you searched your memory banks for the one time that you were in a snowsuit with a hat, glove and scarf and you were misgendered, which is the only way that you'd ever probably get misgendered is if you're wrapped up in snow gear. And then we talked about how, you know, imagine that happening every day. Right. Creating this like gaslighting effect, like speaking for Liz, I am a woman. Why do you keep calling me he? It doesn't make sense. Am I crazy? That's kind of where the dysphoria comes when it's externalized. But also when I was younger, there was this phase between like 11 and 13, maybe 14, where I looked very much like a girl. I was chubby. So it looked like I was starting to um, have breasts. I had these long eyelashes and I did not yet have a full beard on my face. So I had these rosy cheeks and beautiful eyes and long hair. And I also had a proclivity for wearing some of my mother's clothes as in like her jeans and her, I, she had this one running suit that I love wearing and it was purple. Mm-hmm. So I would get misgendered all the time and much different than yours and E's experience Mostly E's experience because it happened to her multiple times. E would get misgendered and be very frustrating because she was very much wanting to live in her femininity and not being seen as the girl at the time and later the woman that she is was very frustrating and dysphoria creating. I couldn't have been happier when people thought I was a girl, (laughs) except for a couple of times that I was in a public men's bathroom where I felt incredibly unsafe for being seen as a girl and being asked if I was a boy or a girl. I just remember feeling very scared that I might get attacked in some way. And that's when the reality hit me that it's not cool. I mean, I've had other markers in my life that told me it's not cool to play with gender, but that literally felt unsafe so something she said during this conversation was not being seen as feminine and i looked inward and said what if i grew up not being seen as feminine or not being seen as a girl yeah they um (laughs) she (laughs) 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 i am broken i am so programmed to call my friend erica e one of her drag characters names is mr e and um i it, it might be multiple people. It might just not be. But me and the aforementioned Pepper refer to Erica as E lovingly all the time, unrelentingly. We don't even care if that's what she wants to be called. We call her E. And to the same effect, I've gotten in the habit of using they, them pronouns with her. And as you heard on the podcast, to find out that that it's not even that they're not her preferred pronouns because that term is bullshit. They're just not her pronouns. She has accepted them because she knew that they weren't coming from a place of malice. And also, to a queer person, they, them pronouns, on the whole, not for everybody, is pretty benign. It's kind of taken with grace. Um, A respect of our um, consideration that gender is kind of bullshit anyhow. 
But anyway, I've gotten a few things wrong and I kind of am overjoyed to make mistakes because it kind of lets people know that mistakes happen and I'm not holier than thou in this area. I don't know everything. I've had to learn about people and learn about myself through this whole process as well. And that's all I have to say about that. Um, I don't know how much there is to actually say about E because she really laid down the law and really gave us more information than we could have asked for. I think that she's incredibly smart, beautiful voice paired with being well-spoken and uh, informative and also really, I almost want to say diplomatic in that when she's confronted with some form of ignorance, she's able to translate it in a loving and more understanding way in the interest of creating bridges. I know Erica and she does not suffer fools <laughs> and she does not put up with hate or unchecked ignorance. Um, I think that she's very focused on keeping people informed so that they make the best decisions when they're dealing with others, specifically queer individuals. Oh, but she did get back to me on a question. Light Watcher is a tag I use and phrase to describe my approach to photography. Maybe because I'm trained as a photographer and because I identify as one, I watch the light a lot. It's also a mental health practice. So at one point, E mentions that she's a light watcher, and you just heard the definition directly from her while she's probably eating dinner. E, thank you for taking time away from your meal to answer my question. I can't wait till you listen to this episode and know that I love you and miss you. And I don't know what the future holds. I haven't been traveling that much, but there's a good chance Liz and I are going to come invade your town. Yeah, I think that's... Um, at some point. We're going to put that on the spreadsheet. I'm just going to say this right now. I'll meet you in New York and we can Amtrak down. Oh, yeah. I mean, done. Done and done. <laughs> little Airbnb in Brooklyn and then train ride down to Baltimore. Oh, see, now I'm looking forward back to up. it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know when it's yeah. going to happen, but that's a nice trip. Yeah. I like, I like that ride. All right. Well, that was a very fun episode and the last of our springtime recordings yes that was uh, <laughs> the first half of our first season and while you're waiting for us to record produce and release our next five episodes we encourage you to take the time to go back and review any episodes you haven't listened to re-listen to episodes that you like and also comment subscribe and the five star thing. I don't know if all the platforms have five stars, but you should just interact with the platform in which you listen to this podcast. And that is what we want. And you can also go directly to WTQpodcast.com. That is our website. And when you listen from there or download, it still shows up in our stats. So please do that. Oh, and also don't forget our Instagram that Liz works so hard on WTQ Podcast. All right. Well, that's it for us. Bye, honey. Bye, honey.